Welcome to the Emotional Intelligence Podcast hosted by Nadia Alfertassi, founder of Thrive with EQ. Join us as we explore the world of emotional intelligence and learn how to build stronger, more resilient workplaces through higher levels of emotional intelligence. With two decades of experience in the world's largest security organization, Nadia brings a unique perspective and invaluable insights to the table. Her mission is to help businesses break down silos, build bridges, and create a culture of emotional intelligence that fosters well-being of employees, builds strong leadership, and ultimately drives business success. By learning how to manage emotions, communicate effectively, and foster a positive work environment, you can improve productivity, reduce turnover, and build a team that's happy, healthy, and motivated. So what are you looking to enhance your own emotional intelligence or create a culture of emotional intelligence within your organization? You're in the right place. Get ready to thrive with EQ. Welcome everyone to another episode of the EQ Elevator podcast. Today I have my first guest. So for those who thought that Nadia had some narcissistic tendencies, since it's only her on her podcast, there is some truth to it, but I am going to have people I admire, people I respect for their people-centric leadership and who want to make security about human centricity. And one of those people I admire the most is Sarah Armstrong. Sarah is chief security advisor at Microsoft. She is a brilliant mind, a great speaker and inspiration for both men and women, because her professionalism, her kindness as a human being really has inspired me a lot as well. So thank you for all that you do, Sarah, on LinkedIn as well, bringing this positive spin about cyber and security. Sarah is also the author of the book, Effective Crisis Management. If you haven't gotten it, you should get it. It's filled with valuable insight, no fluff, but practical insights on how to navigate and reduce the, even the residual risk when navigating crisis. We will never avoid crises, but we can reduce the risk. With that said, Sarah, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you, Nadia. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you again. And what a great topic we're going to be talking about. So as you said, people side of security is something that's really fascinated me. It's fascinated me for a very long time. So my father, when I was little, he used to work in psychiatry in the Royal Air Force. We used to deal with soldiers that were coming back from the war with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so the kind of the people side of security, why people do what they do. You know, we're talking about that kind of emotional intelligence and how that kind of really goes into the workplace. And I know we're here to talk about the inside of threat. But I think there's three layers, really. And I know we're going to dive into this a little bit more. But I think there's a kind of the first set of people are those who are just trying to do their job in the best way they know how. Uh, and for one reason or another, maybe they don't understand policies, they don't understand process, they start to make mistakes. And I think even when the global pandemic, when we think about so many people working from home, they've got so many things going on, all the stresses that are with them, they're more prone to make mistakes, but they're probably more prone to be victims of a phishing attack or a scam or those type of things because there's so much going on in their life. They're not doing anything maliciously. It's just the fact that they make a mistake. So the second group is that malicious insider, the people who are potentially going out of their way to exfiltrate data, to sabotage, 
And it could be that some of them maybe don't even know that they're doing something maliciously per se, because they know they are extracting data. They know that they're doing something, but they don't necessarily know which wrong. So there's almost varying degrees, if you like, of that sort of malicious insider. What we find sometimes is somebody may have resigned. They may have left the organization. And they try and take data with them, but they don't necessarily know that's intellectual property. It's theft of data. And so there's varying degrees of that. I sometimes think about it. Someone might have created a really amazing PowerPoint slide and it's really cool. They love it. And I think, oh, I'll just take that along to my next employer or something like that. So it's potentially IPR theft. It's that something's been created in the organization, but they don't necessarily see it as theft from that perspective. Yeah. So you have the kind of the individual's view, then you have the organization's view. And I think there's then some people who absolutely know they're stealing information. So I think about someone who's maybe stealing customer lists. They might be stealing product information. You're going to a competitor. They think maybe if I've got the price list of things or I've got a list of customers, I'll take that with them. And I think there's you know, this kind of varying degrees. But I think also what we're starting to see is a group in the middle, people who are being manipulated to take action. And again, maybe they don't necessarily know that they're being manipulated, particularly if we're thinking about from an espionage perspective. Again, it could be that someone's trying to get access to information but they need to establish a trusted relationship. They need to be able to have that person embedded in the organization because there's no point taking the information as they leave. Because if I'm after high value research, if I'm after really in-depth information, I want to make sure someone's planted in there to keep giving me the information. And I think sometimes we see this from maybe from nation state sponsored activity whereby they're trying to exfiltrate research, they're trying to exfiltrate information. But obviously having an insider means that they are able to get access to that information and keep getting access to the information. So we've got the kind of the accidental, the malicious and the bit in the middle. Um, but I think a really great example is probably what we're seeing in the media right now, particularly in the US. So there's a case of Jack Teixeira a 21-year-old service personnel who has leaked highly sensitive national security information on a gaming channel, Discord, in essence. And there's a kind of couple of things that are coming out of that, and I'm sure we're going to delve into it a little bit more. So I think the first thing that we're starting to unravel, we may not know all the information until the FBI have done their investigation, things start to come out. But I think the first thing is this is a 21 year old person who has access to top secret information about highly sensitive military operations in the Ukraine and other things. So the first thing we did to look at is why has a 21 year old person got access to this information? And this is not information that he's just had access to. He's had access to this since he was 18, 19 years old, or maybe even since he's actually joined the military. So there's a kind of a question there with regards to the level of trust that is giving to someone who is a young person, someone who's potentially just entered the workforce. I know that we're talking about the military, but it could be any workforce for the first time. They don't necessarily know or understand the level of information that they have the level of responsibility yeah. they have for that information and the consequences 
of that information and the repercussions. So I think that's one bit. That's okay. interesting. Sorry to cut you off, but I think you're, you're spot on. And what I remember from NATO, getting a security clearance back then was a nightmare. And people complained a lot, but I think it should be a nightmare. And some countries had different processes, but they were very due diligent. There were several levels of classification. The higher the classification, the more different steps that were taken. And I think you're spot on the psychological aspect, whether it's not only his age, but at that young age, you just lack certain emotional experience. We may know it on a cognitive level, but emotions do influence behavior. So I'm excited that, that this has happened, but that we can analyze it through a practical human factor framework. Yeah, exactly, Nadia. And I think the second point then is if we, I mean, I would say we don't necessarily know the why, we don't know some of the will, motivation, only little snippets that are coming out after the fact. But I think the other thing to delve into is again, what we see of a lot of young people on gaming platforms. So this, so Jack Tashiro was utilizing Discord, which is like you have subgroups of people who are on a gaming platform, they're sharing info, they're having talks about various different things. And again, it's a kind of the peer pressure, again, from people of a similar age. And you're trying to get a level of kudos like, with your kind of peers. And I think what, we, what we're starting to see is a lot of this kind of started off small. So it starts off with his ability to actually manually write you know, some of the reports down. But it goes up and up. What we know now after the fact is a lot of pe the people that were in that Discord channel, as opposed to Jack Tashir himself, was then copying that out and putting on other channels and how it ended up in the public domain. But no, part of that, was he being coerced and manipulated, as we were saying, in some way to keep going up and up and up to get more and more sensitive information. So I think there's a kind of a peer pressure element there, potentially, whereby he was not just in copying information, he was taking highly sensitive reports home. And we can delve into the security of some of that <laughs> behind the scenes. He was then yeah. talking, taking at home, taking pictures of these reports and then putting those pictures online. So you can see there's an escalation. It didn't kind of just bring all the documents home, put it all on. And it wasn't done once. It was done multiple times. So I think there's an interesting element there as well as how things escalate with regards to either the level of coercion or things that they're being, they're going to do. But I think then there's that kind of realization that once you you do realize potentially that you are leaking highly sensitive information, even if you think it's in a closed domain, how do you backtrack out of it? How do you then all of a sudden think I am doing something wrong? Maybe I'm doing something legal. Maybe I'm going to get caught, but you're already right in the middle of it. So if you don't feel like you're in a safe place, what do you do? Do you carry on? Do you hide it? Do you es keep escalating? If you think I'm already in now, what, what more can I do? This is, this is where leadership comes in. If you look at from the first elevator floor, self-regard, and I don't know if this is the case, but usually it is at, when you're that young, you tend to have a lower level of self-regard because you're still developing your self-image and it's often based on the external environment. How do you see yourself and how comfortable and confident you are in your abilities and in your continuously social comparison. So if that is on the lower side, then perhaps, and this is pure guesswork, but can be one of the way to understand his reasoning in 
taking all these deliberate actions. So this was not human error because as you said, taking pictures, you're taking this deliberate action to put it on a platform you know is not allowed. And then it comes to leadership because it's a risk-based assessment. We all do risk management in our heads. Is the risk of continuing over knowing that it's wrong better, there will come less harm out of it than communicating it to my leadership and then fearing the consequences, having higher intensity of fear for the consequences. Likely he's continuing, people will continue to do what they're doing because the risk of getting caught is perhaps lower. And then the risk of being disciplined or judged or whatever the consequences are, the fear is higher. And I think this is for leadership is so important to take into consideration of why psychological safe space by true good leadership is important for people to not fear making mistakes, but ringing the alarm bell early on. So we you don't have these kind of... Uh... Yeah, and I think an interesting point as well, Nadia, is the fact that how it came about and into the public domain in the first place because it wasn't the intelligence agencies themselves that uncovered it. It was the fact that it was once it was put into the public domain, it then got picked up. I think it was the New York Times and they published the, into the, an article about it and then it all unraveled from there. And I'm sure there's going to be multiple questions why and how this happened. And I think I back think, yeah. even to Ed Snowden, when he was leaking information from the NSA and things like that, and you suddenly think, this is, there's a precedence there. This is not the first time. There may even have been others that haven't uncovered this yet. And I think one of the things that happened even after Ed Snowden is they took actions to stop USBs to be connected into the cloud, into a PC and copying it to there. But I think what's interesting, where there's a will, there's a way. So okay, I can't copy it to a USB, but I can manually write it or I can take things home and I can do all the things. So if I have enough motivation, I will find a way to do it. And there's nothing to stop me doing it as well. So you think about how many opportunities there were, even right from day one in terms of limiting the access to information, even being able to stop printing, to stop copying, to stop people from walking out the door. I think to your point, Nadia, there's a real leadership issue. There's a technology issue, I think, with regards to the controls and the monitoring and how you prevent people from voting and things like that. But I think there's a real leadership issue that either doesn't identify the fact that these things are happening, they could happen, but also just with regards to the fact, as we started, that these are young people, very impressionable people. And as you said, that we, this could have just been a kudos factor between peers, but it could quite easily have been a Russian influence as well. Forcing that person to get, to actually deliberately get that information as opposed to maybe what he thought was interesting information, but even the level of escalation behind it, where would have it stopped? If it hadn't have been leaked in, but in, from other discord channels. If the newspaper hadn't picked up, if they hadn't leaked it, how far would it have continued? Would it have continued? Would he have found the out of his ways and stopped? Or would he have been coerced to do more and more? And I remember, so uh, from my time also at NATO, I think one of the biggest concerns and what they were working on already since years is that Russia is excellent at psychological warfare. So they use psychology, they use emotional intelligence as a mean for warfare. And it's only getting worse as the digital acceleration is 
been going on for many years and still continues. If we take Sarah a step back and go on the third floor to a neutral observer, what are some of the things you would observe from an outsider perspective that perhaps the whoever is the organization or companies who may fear the same or who are in, implementing insider threat mitigation risk, what are some of the things based on the case study you're sharing they can look at from a human factor psychology? I think there's a couple of things. I think number one, it even that we say is an assumed compromise mindset. So with the, whatever their intent, whatever the motivation, you have to assume a compromise. There's always a value to that data to someone. I think that's the kind of the key. And as much as we want to trust people in that environment, and I think with an, from an insider perspective, the fact that they're in our organization, we feel like we've done our due diligence with regards to maybe background right. checks or you, because we're now in our organization, we trust you. We trust you implicitly. Trust shouldn't be implicit. It really should be a trust but verify position. So I think there's some commonalities with regards to how we trust, how much trust we give. But I think as well, it's also as from a leadership perspective, it's understanding how people operate and how people can feel quite isolated. Now, I think the fact that this person not only the fact he was very young, but the fact that he was able to do all of these things with no one noticing suggests to me that there's a leadership issue in terms of monitoring what he's doing. I don't mean in terms from a technology perspective, but just being a responsible and empathetic leader with regards to understanding their day-to-day -day life, what's going on around them, what's changing in their environment. Are they suddenly getting quieter? Are they getting withdrawn? Are they going out of their way to hide their actions? Are they changing their hours? Because ultimately, for you to sit there and copy information out, either you've got, there's a kind of a time lag to do that, but even to print things off, to take them home, to photograph them and bring them back or destroy them, you then think to yourself, how much time is being given to that individual from a leadership perspective to actually understand the person, understand their work environment, but also understand their social environment and how that's changing throughout their time. So I think there's, like I said, there's a couple of aspects there in terms of kind of some of the process, the policy, but really what it then means to be an effective and empathetic leader to people at different stages of their career, particularly young people as they're coming in. If this is the first time that they've been exposed into this environment, then you need role models. You need positive role models to be able to see what is good behavior, what's expected of me. Uh, and then if they're eliciting different types of behavior, why? Is there something we've done in our environment? As you said, there's something going on externally. Is there geopolitical, tension, social, economic things that are going on that could all play a, a role? into why somebody changes their behavior the way they do. You touched on so many points, but one really important one is, and you mentioned this earlier on, sometimes you need to give highly classified privileged access level to certain people, even if they're younger. However, due diligence, you can actually survey, you can go into in-depth surveys of their levels of impulse control, for example. People who have lower levels of impulse control 
tend to have a shorter uh, delay time frame between a triggered emotion and their action. In this case, if it was peer pressure to show off, maybe we don't know because we don't have this information, but this is a realistic scenario for in many organizations, then the low levels of impulse control may lead to not necessarily reflecting about the risk. And this is where leadership needs to give these scenarios and simulations to help people understand because a lot of it is unintentional. If it's intentional, there are other flags, red flags that you can pick up on. And another one is independence. Independence, if someone has a high level of independence, meaning they like to work by themselves, it feels uncomfortable to work in a team. So if you have a leader who has high levels of independence, or when we see in STEM security positions, often they have high levels of independence because they are working in silos when it comes to technology. This is a risk as well in terms of not recognizing if something is wrong, because we, people are complex human beings in the way we think. Our initial train of thoughts is not always rational. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with it. When we feel an intense emotion or when we feel pressure, we all have irrational thoughts, but our ability to use critical thinking, reasoning from a place of clarity, not stress is so important, which brings me to the third point, culture of fear, culture of stress. If it's too long for a chronic time, it puts pressure on our ability to think reasonably, to think that's not, I keep my sense of bad English keeps coming back at every episode. <laughs> it's really very interesting because I do have a good articulation, but I'm a queen of making grammatical errors, which makes it fun as well. If we look at it from a, I think maybe one of the questions that security people may have or security officers is that this is a business risk. And how would you advise or how would you suggest for security people to communicate this as a business risk to the CEO, the board of directors, the legal and sales legal, they do have a really good role, but it's about the art of collaboration and communication in order to have mitigation measures and the right resources in place in advance. How would you, what would you advise them? I was saying there's two really simple questions, which is what if, and in essence, so if I look at more data's perspective, what if this data got into the hands of the enemy or into the public, or you could think about different, different types of people, different types of stakeholders. And therefore, if you do the what if, and then the so what is the measure of the impact? And so when you then look at, this is the data I hold, this is the impact. If that data was in the wrong hands, I can work backwards. I can look at this data needs to be on a need to know basis. And what is it they need to know and when do they need to know it? So just saying all secrets you know, can be open to anyone with specific clearance is not really going to solve anything because that just means if that individual is compromised or their accounts compromised, in, whether it's maliciously, whether it's accidentally, whether they've been targeted, it is a smorgasbord of information that I have access to. And so we want to be able to limit that down as much as possible. And so this is also it comes down to the principle of least privilege. And I think we have a tendency to give way too much privilege, way too much trust because of the role that someone has. And so there's a real key there to be able to link, as you said, the data to the level of privilege. And I think if we link the two together with regards to that, having that in our back of our mind, 
with regards to we assume compromise and if they can get compromised, what can they do with it? And therefore, what are we going to do about it? And inadvertently, you then start to have the different levels of classification. So you can't just classify everything as top secret. There still has to be different levels within that. And it still has to be on that. How do you restrict it to who exactly needs to know and when? But also then looking at the type of security controls that are needed to protect it, to monitor it. And there's some really simple things. We even we're thinking about data loss prevention. I can check for mass downloads. I can check if someone's trying to print something. I can check if someone's trying to put on a USB or put it on an email or do all the different things. And I can take action to stop that from happening. But I can also open investigations. So a real key area um, which really fits into the conversation is behavior analytics. So it's really understanding what is normal behavior for this individual, but what is normal behavior for the peer group of that individual as well? So if I start to see anomalous behavior from this person, is that anomaly coming from the rest of the group as well? So maybe it could well be that this person has been tasked with a specific objective to go and download information regarding that specific case. And therefore, it's quite legitimate that they've got access to that. If in the course of their work, the specific work that they were doing, they had no reason to access those documents at that particular time, that should be a flag. It should be a flag to say why they're downloading it, when they're downloading it, how many times they've downloaded it, and what do they do with it. And so there's all that background monitoring that we can do. We can understand the behavior. But it's not saying the minute someone accesses a document or the minute someone downloads something, because I think that's one of the things which even the military or said themselves, we just don't have the manpower, we don't have the resource to be checking every single person or looking in their bag. It's not really an excuse about how you then manage security because there's an expectation that this information is sensitive. The impact is so high not just in terms of national secrets, but to the personnel on the ground as well. Yes. Soldiers and the safety of those soldiers and everything else. So there are massive consequences, not just in terms of leaking information, but the harm it can do because this is current information. This was information from uh, World War II or something like that. Would it have the same impact? Of course, it's still national security information. So we have to think the currency of the information um, and what they do is so we can set thresholds. We can say if it's this particular file, if they download it X number of times, these are triggers that we should be alerting to. So there's lots of things from a technology perspective, but I also think there's lots of things that we can be doing. We've just seen regards to say people management, um, yes. and the kind of some of the policies that we have. And as we start to see changes in behavior, is there anything in our gift that we can do to help? And I think sometimes if we link security, we have security awareness training, but it's also about well-being and HR policies and processes. So if someone is in uh, in a position of extreme stress, they are making mistakes. They're not thinking, as you say, your, your rational brain is not tuned in. And if you do something on the spur of the moment, because as you said, we've all done it, whereby we've either made a mistake, we've emailed the wrong person, or you've been that wound up about something, you've just you've just sent someone a really and you had sent more content and so you have to think of what's the environment that you have if someone has 
actually then after the fact went, oh, I made a mistake. I've made a re really big mistake. And it also depends on the mood you are in. It just happened to me when I received an email and I was in a bad mood or really tired. I totally misinterpreted the email and I did make the unemotional intelligence, I'm not ashamed to admit it, mistake in replying. And then hindsight, I read it again. I'm like, oh my God, that's, I was in a much clearer mood, more calmer, less stress. I'm like, totally different interpretation. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the point you then get into this sort of realm is if you have a fear factor right from the off, that if I've done something wrong or by accident or by coercion or whatever, but you have the, real the reality of the situation suddenly dawns on you and you don't have anywhere safe to go, what do you do next? Do you just bury it under the carpet, hope no one notices, or do you carry on? Because you're exactly. all in for a penny and for a pound, as they say. So I think that there's several elements to, to pull on there. And I think it's not just one thing. I think it's easy to just turn around and say, oh, you shouldn't have given that person that level of clearance, or you should have had better policies, you should have better technology. But I think what happens is these things don't just happen from nowhere. It's a catalog of things that have happened that have enabled this specific scenario to happen in the way it did. And I think that's the challenge. That's when, obviously, when the investigation happens and more and more information, it's like peeling an onion. We're going to get, we'll yeah. see more and more things. But I just think they've just come out from nowhere. I think it's very unlikely that he was just simply in the middle of a chat and decided, I'm just going to post up all the military secrets. There's, a, there's exactly. things that have happened in that individual's life and also things that have happened that have enabled it to happen in the environment that he works in as well. We're coming to an end, but you've made, I could go on for hours on this topic. It's so relevant as well and in, interesting to look at it from an emotional intelligence perspective. But I think when you said, first of all, it's someone's reasoning as a rule of thumb, who, someone who has more life experience has more filing cabinets in their brain with past experience, their brain, this is neuroscience, you can look it up, has more rehearsed response options than someone who is younger because the uh, impact of their decisions may not yet be seen as error. So they don't have that level of impact. I think this is one. Second, a culture of fear. People will do, go at lengths to reduce the fear they feel or even not credible anymore because we've used so many fear monitoring techniques for cyber for whatever reason that a lot of people don't even take it as a bait. I do think we need to have a health level of fear because it is fearful in a way, but how can you use it as pragmatism? And I think the other one, and I would love to have your concluding thoughts on this, which is a leadership and a cultural issue. I'm, for example, very critical thinker, and I always, sometimes in, with certain organizations or clients, it was welcomed. Other times it was not welcome. And I think when we look at organizational cultures or even in different parts of the world, asking questions from a place of curiosity, not judgment, critical thinking is so important, especially when mitigating insider risk, unintentional. But if you are made to feel wrong about asking questions, it is normal if people feel they don't have knowledge or they feel a bit insecure or whatever it is, then they are going to take it personal. 
and then they are not going to react on that. But I think a culture of critical thinking in an emotional intelligent way is key for people to raise the red flags early on to think, ha, huh, there is an, because we all have spidey senses, as I like to call them. So we notice something is wrong. But then we say, oh, I don't want to be the first one to say something, or I don't want to be an anomaly or gaslighting. If you mention it, and then you're made to think that you are wrong. So I think what would be your concluding thoughts on how to embrace a culture of critical thinking from a place of curiosity, not judgment? I think you hit the nail on the head there, Nadia. Culture plays a huge role in what we're trying to do. The wrong culture, which you said, it, it just reinforces the fear factor. So people are too scared to raise their head above the parapet. Either to call out a wrongdoing or to say there's a mistake or not to question, it just reinforces the bad behavior over and over again. Consequently, it's going to be how bad does it have to get before you make a change? And so having a good culture requires a positive reinforcement, in essence. It needs to have something that changes in that environment. So we can't just say, oh, well, tomorrow we're going to change our culture. It doesn't work like that. So it really has to bite by actions and actions of leadership. And I think there has to be a little level of fragility in that leadership as well to really put their hand up and say, look, we're human. We've all made mistakes. This is where I made a mistake. This is what I learned from it. And just having that ability to, even if you don't have a safe environment, you don't have someone to speak to immediately in that leadership. Who else can you go to? Is there anyone else? Value comes away from moving away from culture of fear. And I think that's where security historically has started from. Security is a thing where only bad things happen. The first time you hear from someone in security is when something bad's happened. They've come to chastise you for clicking the link, for doing all the bad things. So we have to kind of raise that mindset. As you sort of said, for the best will in the world, best will in the world, you know, we can't stop everything. That's the key. And so we have to expect the unexpected. So we have to expect we're going to have insiders. We're going to have external threats. We're going to have a myriad of different things. And it's our job to understand that and our job to make sure we've got the right policy, the right processes, the right technology. The surrounding all of that is culture. And if the culture is wrong, it doesn't matter how great your technology is. It doesn't matter how great your process is if the leadership's not there. So the culture and leadership really do come together and go hand in hand. And I think arguably this is the hardest thing to change and it's not something you can change overnight, but you have to actually make a positive action to want to change and to show leaders how to change ultimately. And I think that some of the things that you're doing just to educate on the importance of emotional resilience and intelligence, what does it mean? And how do you be an effective leader? How do you identify when things are going wrong? It's just so, so important. So I think I love yeah. what you're doing. Thank you. That's why I started this podcast to provide a psychological safe space. I, I know so many are dealing with these challenges, but it feels stigmatizing to talk about them because they feel very personal. But I think we need to talk about them to blame less. Yes. And understand more. And only from a place of understanding can we make informed decisions that are sustainably successful and not quick fixes. So, and when, when we are brutally honest, the STEM industry are highly technical trained. A lot of times they are trained to come from the rational part of the brain. It doesn't mean 
that they don't have empathy or unemotional intelligence, not at all. But you can be in both parts of the brains. And especially in an environment, it is difficult then to switch to empathy, switch to these soft skills, yes. as they like to call them. But you can train people to do so, to actually become aware without feeling wronged. And this is the part of being human when, and the art of giving feedback, which I did the episode today on. When we hear feedback or when we need to adopt a growth mindset, it's uncomfortable to learn new things, but it's even more uncomfortable to unlearn. <laughs> and I think understanding that change happens to us, but disruption happens within people, within us. And it's an emotional process, different for different people and even different for one person in different contexts, is critical for organizations to take into account. Right? When speaking about these things, when raising awareness, if you want people to shift their behavior, you have to come from their map of the world. And you can use a framework to not make people feel wrong. And, and this is going to be huge with upskilling and reskilling as well, because AI is not going anywhere. They still need the human skills, but how are you going to make those two work together? And how are you going to prove your organization, because we can do another episode on how AI will uh, increase the in cyber threat and even cyber threats. But uh, this has been such a um, insightful and great conversation, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you for picking this case study. I think it's an important to look and to keep looking at it, not to blame what could have we done better, but how can we reduce the risk? How can we understand it from a human factor? on people's reasoning and outside influence on people's behavior and lead to certain response option. Our behavior can change. Even if we expect people to behave a certain way in a certain manner, our mood, the stress, the leadership impacts the way people will respond in certain situations. So how can we reduce the risk? But thank you very much, Sarah. I look forward to sharing this. This will be on the Trifid EQ page. And for those who want to have more insight on the key takeaways and reflection prompts, I will announce the community, the EQ Leadership community, which is a community for everyone who is interested in using emotional intelligence to strengthen leadership in STEM. But thank you very much. And this was a real pleasure. Do you have any last takeaway? If Sarah is very active on LinkedIn, she's a wonderful person. Connect with her on LinkedIn. As well, don't forget to buy her book. It's really a gem. And is there anything, any parting last words you want to share? And I would just say, reiterate what you said already, Nadia, which is being inquisitive. Ask the questions. There are no silly questions. If you're thinking it, someone else probably is as well. The more we ask the questions, the more we're going to unearth some of these issues as well. So yeah, it's just been a really great conversation. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the EQ Emotional Intelligence Elevator Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained valuable insights into the world of emotional intelligence. To learn more about Thrive with EQ and Nadia's mission to build stronger, more resilient workplaces through higher levels of emotional intelligence, visit our website at thrivewitheq.com. You'll find a plethora of EQ leadership resources, tools, and services to help you and your organization thrive. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As always, keep thriving with EQ.